from the brilliant creative minds that brought you Keep Drinking, It'll Get Better, and The Real Housewives of Hillcrest Nursing Home comes the podcast that people are raving about. Hi, this is Edward October for OctoberPodVHS.com, here to tell you what people are saying about our true crime podcast. A thread store in Arizona says, too much dribble and slang. These ladies obviously enjoy their own humor and sound high. Hey, at least they called you ladies. Benny from Idaho says, your topics are so appealing, but a three-person pod is difficult enough to follow without banter. Um, our true crime podcast only has two people? Wait, 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 wait. Where's the other 100 five-star reviews? Can somebody give me the five-star reviews? Okay, here we go. Much better. Luscious Lee says, stand up. Five stars. You girls are funny AF. I especially love the me and Mrs. Jones rendition you sneak into the recording. Cherry G 107 says, I struggle finding a new podcast, and so far, I've been hooked to you guys' podcasts. Keep up the good work. Thumbs up, thumbs up, smiley face. Our true crime podcast, two girls, one story, and lots of bad renditions of songs you love. Available on your favorite podcatcher. Go binge it today. Thank you for listening to Invisible Choir. This episode contains sensitive material, including graphic depictions of violence or abuse against children, which some listeners may find especially distressing or traumatic. Listener discretion is advised. What causes a parent to hurt, harm, or even murder their very own child? A child they searched for and longed for in their hearts. A child they desperately wanted in an effort to complete their family. This time on Invisible Choir. Spider, a source of fear for most of us with their long furry legs and potentially vicious bite. They most often come out at night and are the stuff of legitimate phobias, nightmares if you will, to children. But the case we're covering today is not one of the scary spider, but of the watcher who came out at night and inadvertently exposed a dark secret, an unimaginable cruelty no one saw coming even though the signs were right there in front of them all along. Police continue to focus on an SUV that left the family's garage the same morning that Sharon Matthews vanished. Now, since she's disappeared more than a week ago, police have told us how small she was, only 22 pounds uh, at three years old, and how she needed to be fed constantly to try to put on weight. But in these new videos you're about to see, you see a little girl full of life. Are you stuck? Sharon Matthews playing at church. It's the first video the public has seen of the missing three-year-old. A second video shows her singing along at a birthday. The Indian orphan was adopted and came to Texas about a year and a half ago. The images were posted by acquaintances of the Matthews family on a public Facebook page. Richardson police say they continue to focus on an Acura SUV. Most parents have experienced that terrifying moment, that moment that's only a fraction of a second when they realize they don't have eyes on their child. The thoughts rushing through your mind and the primal fear in your core are indescribable. For parents, grandparents, caregivers, whatever the relationship, the feeling is the same. For most of us, it truly is only fractional increments between breaths that feeling of suspended animation that can just as easily dissipate when you suddenly gaze upon the child again. The quick sense of relief can be just as emotional and intense. It's a welcomed intensity though, because in those few seconds, all that was wrong has become right again. It overcomes you with an overwhelming sense of relief. Your world is once again complete, but for some, well, some aren't as lucky. For some of us, These moments never end. In fact, they can last an eternity. 
so the, the call came out as a missing child call and the call comments um, stated that the father put the child outside of the residence as a form of discipline for not drinking the daughter's milk and the child was last seen at three o'clock in the morning so what do you think of, uh, and this is about eight the call comes in about 808 you respond pretty quickly what do you think and it's 830 in the morning so in this call Yes, sir. It's, it's a serious call uh, in that we have a, a three-year-old child that's missing. Uh, we have a five-hour time uh, lapse in time where the child was last seen until reported. Uh, so it's a serious call, and, and we responded quickly. At 8 a.m. on the morning of Saturday, October 7, 2017, Officer Jerry Savage of the Richardson, Texas Police Department gets a call on the non-emergency line from a father wishing to report his three-year-old daughter missing. Only, she's already been gone for nearly five hours. But you've been looking for her since 3 o'clock in the morning? Yes, I did look for her for maybe two hours. Okay. Did you look inside the house and any beds and closets and everything? Yeah, I did. I looked everywhere inside the house. There's no way she could have come in. Uh, she's three years old. You know, she cannot come in for the backyard fence at all. So, really, we looked uh, all around the house. Uh, there's no place of her now. The demeanor of the caller surprised police. The calm father explained he had spent only two of the last five hours looking for his missing toddler. These were the most critical hours and there was no sense of urgency at all in his voice. They found other things unusual about the call as well. The story surrounding her disappearance seemed unlikely at best. Wesley Matthews explained that around midnight he noticed his daughter hadn't finished her milk. So he woke her up and put her in her special, quote, standing spot, a spot in the living room where he expected her to remain as she finished her sippy cup full of milk. Her father found other things to do in between checking on her, and before he knew it, it was almost three o'clock in the morning. He decided maybe she needed a change of scenery as he continued to lovingly encourage her to finish her nightly milk so she could grow up to be big and strong. Matthew's daughter, Sharon, was adopted just a year prior from an orphanage in India, where she was provided only rice and coffee creamer to eat. She was underweight when she arrived in the U.S. and was having trouble assimilating to eating nutrient-rich and diverse foods. At barely 22 pounds, the pediatrician recommended she consume a minimum of 15 ounces of milk per day, along with any other solid foods she chose to eat. So making sure his daughter was getting the proper nutrients she needed was priority one for this loving father, even if it meant losing sleep or waking a sleeping toddler up at midnight to remind her to drink some milk. Eventually, Matthews alleges he took Sharon out to the garage because she had a fascination with his new lawnmower. Despite the change in scenery, Sharon still wasn't drinking her milk. And as any parent can tell you, patience can go a long way with staving off frustration. However, even the best parents can get frustrated by the children they have sworn to love and protect, especially when lack of sleep is involved. Matthews knew it was time for some tough parenting. He decided the best course of action would be to put Sharon outside next to a tree located on a greenbelt past the alleyway behind his home. Despite having seen coyotes in the area, he still believed Sharon would be safe outside all alone. He believed it would motivate his 22-pound toddler to drink all of her milk so she could come back inside the home. However, Matthews alleges he lost track of time. He left Sharon by the trees and went back into the house to complete some chores as one allegedly does in the early morning hours. He claims he washed some dishes and did a load of laundry hoping that when he returned for Sharon, she would have finished her milk. However, to his surprise, she was missing. Five hours later, Matthews googled the non-emergency line for the sheriff's department and calmly reported his daughter missing. Despite sounding to take the disappearance of his missing daughter about as seriously as the family pet having run away, the responding dispatcher felt otherwise. 
The Richardson Police Department were taking Sharon's disappearance very seriously. In fact, they immediately dispatched officers to search the home, the yard, and the surrounding woodline. They also invited the FBI into the search, requesting their expertise in forensics and interrogations. defendant do anything to let you know that that was going to be a waste of time? During the search of the house, he followed me around the house instead of leading me through a house, which you would expect if that was your house. Uh, so I was I, looking at the video now, it looks like I'm frantically looking through the house and, and he's just kind of following me around. So you're the one who's frantic and what is the defendant's demeanor like? Uh, very, very calm and, and of no, showing no remorse, concern for his daughter. Uh, you walked through the entire house twice, you said. I did, sir. Did you notice anything in particular about the laundry room? Um, after the fact, I noticed it, but there was laundry done. Uh, there was clothes in the dryer and the, in the wash machine. Uh, like it had just been washed, correct? Uh, and clothes in the washing machine. Yes, sir. Um, anything odd about that? Well, just if, if, if you were searching for your child and had great concern of where your child was at, you wouldn't be doing laundry. After searching inside the home, Officer Savage had Sharon's father take him outside to the last place he saw his 22-pound three-year-old daughter. Again, they went over the sequence of events, Matthews touring the officer around the property. This tour, caught on the officer's body cam, showed the search from his perspective as Matthews led him outside to a large fenced-in backyard. The two walked across the yard and through a locked gate and into an alleyway. Located 25 to 30 yards past the back gate was a grouping of dense trees that looked like shrubbery. It would seem easy enough to lose a child inside of the thick foliage. On the footage, the officer appears incredulous to discover that this is where Matthews left his tiny daughter all alone. Officer Savage also noticed that Matthews changed the timeline. Suddenly, he recalled taking Sharon to the dense trees earlier in the evening, between 1 and 2 in the morning, only discovering her missing over an hour later at 3 o'clock in the morning. Matthews also admits he banished Sharon to the dense trees in the dark in the early morning hours as punishment. According to Matthews, Sharon was still uninterested in drinking her cup of milk, which was from the prior day at her original 8 p.m. bedtime. Officer Savage promptly radioed for more officers to help him canvass the large area in an attempt to find the young girl. He instantly knew something wasn't right with his father's story, and three days later, when the FBI conducted a search warrant, they immediately agreed. As you walked through the house, um did you notice something a little unusual for a family that had two daughters? Yes, we noticed that there were photographs of one of the daughters on the walls, but we did not see any photographs of the other daughter. And was the one daughter Shane Matthews? Yes, it was. And throughout that entire house, did you see any photographs of Sharon Matthews? No, we did not. And that struck you as being out of the ordinary, is that fair to say? That's correct. In fact, the first time that you and I sat down to talk, that was one of the first things that you said to me, is that right? Yes. Um, did y'all do, again, tests looking for blood evidence, DNA, things like that throughout the house? Yes, we did. Uh, any success with any of that? Our presumptive blood test tested positive in the interior door to the garage. Wesley Matthews and his wife, Cindy, also had a biological daughter, just a year older than Sharon. Shana was four years old, and from a view of the residence, she appeared adored in the apple of her parents' eyes. The Matthews had large picture collages on the wall dedicated to Shayna. They had both candid and professional photos throughout the house of their firstborn biological child. They even had casual photos of Shayna displayed on the refrigerator inside the home. In a startling comparison, nowhere were there any pictures of the orphan child they had adopted from India just 18 months before. A daughter who Matthews insisted was, quote, the heart of the family. Oddly, the picture the family gave to the police officer from their door-to-door -door search came from Cindy Matthews's phone. The picture appeared to be taken by a teacher from a daycare or occupational therapy setting. Sharon's parents hadn't even bothered to print out any pictures 
of their youngest child. Anyone visiting the home for the first time would be led to believe that Matthews only had one child. From a cursory view of inside the home, Sharon didn't appear to exist at all. Uh, he told me there was a five-hour delay in the report of the missing child and that uh, the caller, Wesley Matthews, called the non-emergency number, not 911. Let's start right there. Uh, two things you brought up. Five-hour delay. What is significant in that? With, with a missing child, you wait five hours to alert, alert any authorities. Uh, it just throws up a red flag. I've never had a, a situation like that before where there was a long delay with a three-year-old child missing. And then after five hours, you called the non-emergency line. Explain to the jury, what, non-emergency versus 911. What are we talking about there? Um, again, another red flag. If you, if you call 911, uh, a 911 operator will answer, whether it's Dallas, Garland, Richardson, Plano, and they can transfer you to the correct operator if your call's routed to a different agency. By calling non-emergency means that you had to look that number up, figure out what the non-emergency line was, and call that line, which goes to the same dispatcher. You had this information as you before you arrived on scene, correct? Correct. And so, you get a call about a missing child. There's a five-hour delay, and the defendant calls the non-emergency line. As you're driving to 919 Sunnydale, what's going through your mind? Um, red flags are going off just based on the nature of um, what's been told to me. I, uh, I called dispatch and requested that they email me the 911 call. Um, so dispatcher said it'd take a couple minutes so that they would uh, email that to me. I have a work phone with access to my work email. So once I got that email, I played the audio and uh, I heard a three minute call with the dispatcher that um, sounded like someone reporting a missing item, not a missing child with no emotion. Detective Diaz with the FBI Intelligence Unit was adding up all of the red flags, and he didn't like where this was going. He suspected it wouldn't result in a positive outcome for Sharon. He knew the next step was an interrogation of Wesley Matthews to determine the missing girl's fate. Matthews was interrogated the first time on the day Sharon disappeared, on October 7, 2017. While investigators were still collecting evidence and conducting interviews, the warning signs and the time frame demanded a direct and confrontational approach. However, as hard as they pushed, Matthews refused to deviate from what authorities felt was a fictional story. They made no secret over the fact that they found his explanation of calmly and patiently encouraging a child to drink milk in the early morning hours to be patently false. Common sense would dictate otherwise, and experience and instinct were leading them to believe something far more nefarious befell Sharon Matthews that night. We're getting to the point now where we're going to charge you with murder because you killed her. We can't find her. She's not there. You put her back there by the tree. You turned off the location devices on your phone. You cleared the browsing history. Your wife's statement is different. You turned off that locating history so we couldn't find her body. That's why you did that. I can, I can have your phone have the location turned on all the time. The location is turned on by default. But you the turned it off in the middle of the time that you're supposedly looking for your little girl, for your daughter. No, I, I you don't know. The, the phone doesn't lie. phone doesn't lie. It's a turn on, you showed it to me. Okay, yeah. right. So we should agree with you. You didn't put it in airplane mode and the flashlight thing doesn't turn off the location. I was not for you. You turned off the locating service so we can't you track your device to figure out where you were at at 3.50 in the morning to figure out which dumpster you're putting your daughter in. Those are. Where did you put her? Those are. She's out there. Where is she at? She's not there. Right? She's, she's not by the house. She's not by your house. She's behind the house. She's standing right there. No, she's not. There's not even evidence that a coyote grabbed her. She is gone. No, you turned her. off the GPS on your phone. Where is Sharon? Where is your daughter? What did you do with her? Sir, I told you everything I know, sir. 
After forensic analysis of Wesley Matthews' phone, the FBI was able to determine that he had turned off the location services on both his phone and wife Cindy's phone during the early morning hours after Sharon had gone missing. Investigators believed he turned off the GPS location services so he could dispose of his daughter's dead body without being tracked by technology. This was seen as an evasive measure from someone who had something to hide. Investigators also noted that when he spoke about his biological daughter, he used her name, always referring to her as Shana. However, when he referred to Sharon, he used distancing language, only referring to her as the girl. It was clear to investigators that he lacked any fatherly or parental bond with his missing child. He was neither frantic nor in a hurry to have her found. The lack of concern for her whereabouts was startling to investigators who could only imagine how they might feel or respond in a similar position. It was far different than this father's behavior. When he repeatedly referred to her as the girl, it was with a complete lack of emotion. In fact, there was no evidence Sharon ever stood out by the tree, and scent dogs confirmed that Sharon never made it past the garage. Yet Matthew stuck to his initial story that she was taken away by coyotes or wandered off on her own accord. But it turns out there was a witness that night, a very unlikely witness. And based upon what that witness captured, Wesley Matthews was placed under arrest for child endangerment. In this case, uh, you mentioned some video. Um, you were able to get some video from a house uh, across the railroad tracks which had a camera on it, which was actually activated by a spider spitting a web on it, correct? Correct. We um, located a video at 1108 South Bowser. Um, it was a motion-activated camera that faced uh, the Matthews residence over the railroad tracks. Um, we were told it was motion-activated, so we probably weren't going to have anything, but uh, there was a spider web with a spider on it that kept the camera activated all night, and we were able to look at the video and determined that uh, a vehicle pulled out of the driveway at uh, 4.19 a.m. on uh, October the 7th. And at uh, 4.53, that vehicle backed into the driveway, back to the house. As Matthews continued to spin his web of lies, a solitary spider was spinning a web of truth, a web that would ultimately serve his undoing. Despite Matthew's assertions that he spent two hours searching the tree line on foot looking for the girl, a motion-activated video camera recorded the diligent work of an active spider that also caught something else in its web that night. Something unexpected. It caught Wes Matthews leaving his home for 24 minutes in his Acura MDX SUV, just long enough to dispose of Sharon's body and still have three hours before reporting his daughter missing to the non-emergency police line. Matthews, who was immediately out on bail following his child endangerment charge, knew he needed to spin another tale, a more believable one, a tale that matched the evidence. This time accompanied by his lawyer, he had all the answers the authorities were looking for. In fact, it had been 15 days since the day that Sharon had disappeared, and despite exhaustive searches using drones, scent dogs, and community volunteers, Sharon was nowhere to be found. The media had picked up on the story, and the outrage from the local and national news sources were beginning to have an effect on the Matthews family. Child Protective Services had come in and removed the Matthews' biological daughter pending the outcome of Sharon's disappearance. Maybe Matthews' conscience got the better of him. Or maybe, in an effort to regain custody of the child he seemed to cherish, Matthews told a far different story. A tragic story. An accidental one. A story that absolved him and his wife from any responsibility in Sharon's disappearance. We uh, talked to him about what had happened and he basically said um, that on uh, October 7th in the, in the morning, uh, he's in the garage, Sharon won't drink her milk. Um, he's helping her drink the milk when she starts to choke. Uh, she she starts to choke and choke to the point where he checks and she didn't have a pulse. Her eyes roll back and um, her hands and feet are getting cold. He's rubbing her back to try to warm her up and uh, he realizes that she's she's passed.
Realizing that his previous story didn't match the evidence, Matthews was forced to come clean. As investigators originally suspected, Sharon didn't disappear from the tree line behind their home. In this new story, she allegedly passed away in the garage while drinking her milk. Matthews offers the extra detail about turning off his wife's GPS location tracker to seemingly match the evidence investigators had already shared with him in their prior interrogation. He coldly explains placing Sharon inside of a blue trash bag, a bag that was designated for recyclables, which evidently prompted him to realize he had other recycling material to dispose of that night. With a complete lack of self-awareness, he describes combining his two tasks for the evening. He gathered the other accumulated trash and placed them into the back of his SUV along with Sharon's bagged body. After driving around for a few minutes, he came upon a dumpster, which he deemed sufficient for discarding the extra cardboard material. But he isn't a monster, of course, so he began to look for a nicer place to dump his second bag of trash that evening. He explains with all the sincerity he can muster that he was looking for someplace safe and warm to discard of his daughter's body the daughter he swore to love and protect. He described coming upon some beautiful trees, and next to them was a safe concrete culvert. Some might call it a raw sewage outlet, but Matthews called it a beautiful and safe final resting place. It was there that he placed his daughter's body where it would stay for the next 15 days, decomposing and serving as a food source for animals and maggots to feed upon in the humid Texas heat where the average March temperatures regularly reach the mid-70s. And that is where she stayed until Matthews chose to reveal her location. She was so badly decomposed that the medical examiner was unable to determine a cause of death other than the generic label of death by homicidal violence. Um, I got a phone call that... Uh basically said they uh, they think they found Sharon. Um, uh, was kind of in shock and asked more questions and was basically told, we found what looked to be remains of a small child about a half a mile from the Matthews residence. Uh, so I went ahead and came in. Uh, we called uh, FBI ERT. Uh, they came out and processed the scene. After providing investigators with the location of Sharon's body, Matthews continued to explain why he was so insistent that his daughter drank the daily recommended amount of milk. It would turn out that the Matthews' pediatrician had reported the family to CPS for suspected child abuse. During an examination with Dr. Suzanne Deckel, she discovered that Sharon had several recent injuries in varying stages of healing. The Matthews insisted that Sharon was suffering from brittle bone disease because of the malnutrition she suffered while living in an orphanage in India. But brittle bone disease is actually a genetic condition, which causes the sufferer to break bones easily with or without actual injury. You can fracture a bone just by walking across the floor or going on about your normal day. Through a full body x-ray, Dr. Deckel determined that Sharon did not suffer from the disease, nor were her bones in a weakened state due to poor nutrition. However, she was underweight for her age, which is why the doctor had recommended that she drink at least 15 ounces of milk per day, while she gradually became more comfortable eating other types of solid food. Of most concern to Dr. Deckel were the multiple injuries shown on Sharon's tiny skeletal frame. Based upon the differing levels of healing, all of Sharon's injuries occurred well within the 18-month time frame she had been living with the Matthews and most within the last six months leading up to the discovery of her body. Sharon's adoption from India took place in July of 2016. Just three months later, she presented her first fracture in the left elbow. Child abuse advocates recommended taking special note of the common injuries to children in places such as arms and elbow joints, noting any wrist or spiral arm fractures, as these can often indicate abuse. These types of injuries are often because of an adult yanking or twisting on the child's arm. Emergency room professionals are given specialized training to help determine when an injury of this type should be reported to CPS. The Matthews explained that their older daughter Shayna had pushed Sharon off of the couch resulting in her injury. A few months later, in January of 2017, Dr. Deckel diagnosed Sharon with failure to thrive as she was no longer gaining weight between scheduled visits. 
It was after this diagnosis that the Matthews family were told to give Sharon at least 15 ounces of milk per day. She was referred to a food therapist who worked with Sharon on eating different foods and textures. The therapist noted that Sharon first presented as shy, but then quickly warmed up and was happy, sweet, giggly, and engaging. With the help of the therapist, Sharon successfully overcame her food aversions. However, she would still become quite upset and fearful when first presented with a cup of milk. For some reason, that cup represented fear or trauma to Sharon Matthews, as evidenced by her documented reactions. In February of 2017, during a follow-up x-ray, they discovered that Sharon had healing fractures in different stages to both of her shoulders. One injury resulted in an infection of her joint, causing her hospitalization. Sharon's mother, Cindy Matthews, explained that these injuries must have occurred when she slipped off of some playground equipment and she grabbed the child by the shoulder to catch her from falling. Yet the story didn't explain the injury to Sharon's other shoulder and why they seemingly occurred at different times. When Cindy texted her husband that the doctor was recommending Sharon to be hospitalized, Matthews' text messages back to his wife showed irritation and lack of concern. Matthews told his wife to tell the doctors that, quote, Tell the doc we can't admit. Got another little girl to care for. We can come back tomorrow for follow-up labs. When the hospital insisted, he became more concerned about the cost. He stated, quote, Wonder if they will find any defects. Don't let them run any more tests. We'll end up paying. Immediately after this text exchange with his wife, Matthew sent a group text to members of his church, suddenly showing more concern for the same child he called defective only moments earlier. He asked his church group to, quote, Please pray for Sharon, as she is not well and is admitted at Children's Medical Center. The face he shared with his church and members of the public differed from the reality of the way he felt and treated his child in private. It was during this hospitalization at the Children's Medical Center when a full-body scan showed that Sharon also had several fractures in both legs. Perhaps Matthews feared more than just the cost of the test. He may also have feared the results, which showed the leg fractures were also in varying stages of healing, just like the shoulders were. Sharon's body was telling a story to medical professionals. It was a story of rage, abuse, and subsequent injury. Because of this scan, Dr. Deckel reported the Matthewses to CPS in March of 2017. Cindy Matthews immediately called Dr. Deckel to complain about the allegations, asking her to withdraw the charges as they would, quote, ruin her weekend. Just seven short months later, and Sharon Matthews would be dead. Because her body was so decomposed when discovered inside of the cement culvert, the prosecution didn't feel they could prevail with a capital murder charge. Instead, they allowed Wesley Matthews to plead guilty to a lesser charge of injury to a child by omission. However, the sentence could be as lenient as probation or as harsh as life in prison. That would be up to a jury. Perhaps fearing a potentially harsh sentence for his role in Sharon's death as well as the subsequent cover-up, Matthews took the stand in his own defense. I uh, listened to Officer Savage yesterday and and that's when I realized the, uh, the gravity of uh, the amount of work that police officers had done. And I just wanted to take this moment to talk to specifically to Officer Savage and other Richardson police officers who uh, who answered my call and came that morning. I wanted to tell them, please, please find it in your hearts to forgive me. I wanted to know that I detest myself. I detest myself for being Untruthful two police officers. A very remorseful Wes Matthews was suddenly thankful to the men who were trying to find his daughter. The men who didn't believe his ridiculous story that the girl went missing while drinking milk. Or the later story that she suddenly choked while drinking milk and turned cold. His new story is that of the loving father. That instead of waking his daughter, he instead notices her awake and gives her his phone to play with. Instead of giving the toddler milk from earlier in the night, this version has him washing her cup and giving her fresh milk. 
He describes a pleasant place he refers to as her, quote, special spot. During his testimony, he describes himself as someone who has the patience of Job. As he had described in his original story, he still conducts small activities such as washing dishes and tending to mail while he waits for Sharon to drink her milk. He checks on her and discovers she hasn't progressed. So he plays the piano for a while and again checks back on his daughter, who hasn't moved from the spot he insists that she loves to stand in while she drinks her milk. Essentially, since we've already been called out once by CPS, and CPS investigated us for four months, at the end of it, uh, they cleared us of, our, of uh, all the allegations. Um, we were always uh, afraid that this doctor can go and dial back CPS and bring CPS back to us. The doctor can say the uh, parents are not feeding the child enough, and uh, and so it basically falls on us. So we, we try all the encouragements and all different ways to help Sharon uh, gain a little more weight. Matthews explained that his biggest fear was that Sharon would need surgery and require a feeding tube inserted. So it was of utmost concern that she continued to gain weight, no matter how much fuss she put up. He also had a fear that CPS would take his children from him if Sharon continued to fail to thrive. This new version of Matthews loved his daughter so much he would never want to hurt her or cause her any unnecessary pain. Those were the thoughts going through his mind as he decided the garage would be the proper place to inspire Sharon to drink her milk. At some point I decided uh, to, go, to go to the garage because I had just cleaned it out and it was nice and clean. I, you know, I was walking barefoot in the garage so it was pretty clean and I wanted uh, Sharon to be able to uh, take a look at uh, the new lawnmower that I had bought. I'd known that she had a fascination for the lawnmower so I decided maybe you know she might be interested in uh, looking at the lawnmower and be able to uh, help uh, finish her milk. So uh, I take her into the garage and I show her the lawnmower and, uh, and get her comfortable in the garage so that she's able to uh, drink her milk. In his new version of events, Matthews begins to feel sleepy. He begins to nod off. And when he wakes up from his self-described short nap, he looks over at Sharon and notices she still isn't drinking her milk. He tells her again to please drink the milk, but he believes it may have come out harsher than he intended. It came out much louder than I expected and it startled her. And immediately she tried to swallow what was in her mouth and she tried to cry at the same time. Uh, she was startled and so as a result uh, she started choking and coughing uh, pretty soon because of that choke and uh, her choking, I mean her coughing wouldn't subside so I picked her up and I rubbed her back, I cupped her back so that her cough would uh, be relieved but uh, it wasn't subsiding and I saw that her coughing was getting worse so I uh, cried out to uh, Mama, Mama, I cried out to Mama uh, and I kept saying, Sharon, Sharon, come on, it's okay baby, Let's, we can go back inside, we can go back inside, but her coughing was getting worse and at one point I felt that uh, she was just falling backwards and I had to support her uh, with my right hand and I felt that I could not control her so I had to lay her on the floor. I was uh, on my knees, I laid her on the floor just to make sure that she was okay. Uh, but uh, her breathing had gotten much more heavier and uh, I, I called, tried to call Mama. Uh, I uh, tried to uh, gently shake Sharon so that she would be out of that spell, but nothing was working and uh, in, a, in a matter, I don't know, pretty soon, uh, her head started going in either direction and her head came to uh, a still. But the gentle coaxing didn't work, and because he was in the garage, his wife, who was a registered nurse, couldn't come to his aid and provide Sharon with medical care. She was still sleeping in bed, oblivious to the crisis going on in the garage with their daughter. Matthews acknowledges that his story had changed yet again, but the reason he is going into more detail was because he believed the jury 
is entitled to the truth. He wanted them to know that he was panicking and performing CPR on Sharon. So even though his wife might have more medical training, that wasn't what was going through his head as he desperately tried to bring his beloved child back to life. One more thing had also changed. He no longer coldly referred to Sharon as just the girl, as he had in all of his previous interrogations. Now Sharon was his baby girl, and he was desperate to bring his baby girl back to life. Once he knew his attempts at CPR had failed, he didn't want his wife to know that their baby was gone. I was way too shocked by what had happened. I could not, uh, I could not absorb what had happened. I could not believe that uh, in a very quick time, my child had gone from me, and I, I was just stunned by the whole thing, and I was really, really paralyzed. Instead of doing what any other parent might, either phoning 911 to request emergency services or carry his daughter inside to his wife, the registered nurse, Matthews instead chose to rely upon his faith to help him with the crisis unfolding in front of him there in the family's garage. Sharon eventually fell limp onto the cold cement floor. I, I just sat there, I prayed to the Lord God. I did not know what to do because intense fear started coming into me because uh, I knew that if you know CPR, uh, if uh, if CPS would find out, then definitely they are definitely going to come and uh, destroy and demolish my house. And I had uh, I did not want Sini to uh, come and see our Sharon uh, lifeless. So I, I just I just stayed there because I, I knew that Sini would collapse on seeing uh, Sharon in this in this condition. He realized it would be best for everyone if he found a place for his child's body where she would be preserved and protected from the elements. The way he chose to honor Sharon was to place her body inside of a blue trash bag designated for recyclables and while he was at it, also throw in some other trash along with it. Because in the mind of this, quote, loving father, there was no use in wasting a car trip when you could kill two birds with one stone. So he also collected the other recyclables and went to visit a dumpster he frequents for such errands on his way to finding Sharon a peaceful resting place less than one mile from his home. He believed by placing her in a raw sewage culvert that the Lord would perform a miracle and bring her back to life. I refuse to believe that my child had completely gone from this world. I believe that if I pray hard and strong enough that God would bring my child back. I, uh, I believe that the Lord God who brought Lazarus out of the tomb after four days can bring my children back to me. When he saw the culvert, Matthews had another thought that perhaps he could join Sharon inside so she wouldn't be alone, so he wouldn't be without her, so that his world wouldn't come crashing down all around him. Matthews was making decisions under the threat of losing everything that he had built, all that he owned and all that he treasured and prioritized in the world. With the threats from CPS, he stood to lose more than just Sharon. He could also potentially lose his biological child along with his reputation within the community. There was a tremendous amount of pressure influencing his decisions, perhaps even influencing his emotions towards Sharon. So, um... I see those uh, those trees and I wanted her to go by those trees and place my child by the trees, but then I see the culvert and um, and immediately my heart is going. Okay, so that culvert looks very dark. There's, I cannot see anything at all. There is a very likely chance that I can crawl in the culvert with uh, my Sharon. And there's going to be definitely a snake in there. And I was eagerly just hoping and praying that I would be bitten by a snake and I can be there in that cardboard with my child. Together we can be in heaven with our Lord. Despite his prayers, there wasn't a snake inside of the culvert. But back near the Matthews home, there was a busy little spider spinning its web. Bearing witness to the lies Matthews continued to tell in court. Because according to the timeline caught on the video camera, with the very active spider, Matthews couldn't have given that imaginary snake 
more than a few moments before he was back at home working on his cover-up story, working out his missing child theory, and working up the courage to make that phone call to the sheriff's non-emergency line, where he was able to disguise his panic with a disinterested demeanor. The defense, in their closing statements, admitted that there were failures and inactions that led to Sharon's death. They agreed their client made many mistakes, beginning with the failure to render proper medical aid, as well as hiding the body, lying to his family, to police, and to the community. But ultimately, they believed their client was ready to take his punishment, as long as it wasn't too harsh. They stated they weren't looking for straight probation, as that wouldn't be justice for Sharon, and above all else, this trial was about giving her justice and death that she never received in life. They believed that Matthews had a lot to live for and could make amends to his community as a contributing member of society someday. They were looking for something in the range of 10 years with the possibility of probation after just five. But the prosecution disagreed. They felt that but for Matthews hiding Sharon's body, and preventing the medical examiner from determining an appropriate cause of death, this would be a capital murder case. Sharon had been forgotten about and abandoned shortly after her birth by her biological parents, only to be battered and abused and ultimately murdered and abandoned once again by her new family. Her new family that had contracted to love and protect her through legal adoption where her biological parents failed. The prosecution was asking for a life sentence. They believe Sharon deserved just that, a life for a life. This whole thing was about anger and frustration over milk. He had to be in control. Yes, she needed to drink milk. That's because somehow she was doing fine for the first couple months. And then... Mysteriously, things start going south, and it starts with that broken arm. And then over the course of those five months, you've got five broken bones, she's not gaining weight, she's got feeding issues. What is going on under his care? He's the dad. And he acts like he doesn't even know what's going on up here. But I couldn't get a straight answer out of him to save my life. He wouldn't even say that, that trash bag was used for trash. It's just blue, he's got blue bags just lying around his house. He had to show Sharon who was in charge. Drink your milk, Sharon. You're going to do what I say because I'm the adult here and you're just the girl, the little girl. You're just trash. She died looking into the eyes of the protector. Wesley Matthews, the protector. She died looking into her father's eyes. Not a dad. Father in name only. That was her life. It ended, we assume, in their garage. We don't know. We're never going to know. Her life is gone at the age of three. Sharon survived abandonment, neglect, abuse, and repeated broken bones. But what she couldn't survive was one night in the garage with the man who swore to love and protect her as if she were his own. But she wasn't his own. He never saw her as his own. Because if he had... Maybe there would have been a picture of her in a frame somewhere inside their home. Maybe she would still be alive today. Sharon was just as unwanted by the man who promised to be her father as the mother who threw her away in the bushes in India. It seemed the only people who valued little Sharon Matthews were the law enforcement officers who looked for her tirelessly and the prosecution who fought for justice and ultimately the jury who delivered it. We, the jury, unanimously find the defendant guilty of the offense of injury to a child causing serious bodily injury as charged in the indictment and hereby assess punishment at life imprisonment.
Wes Matthews will be eligible for parole in 2049 after serving 30 years of his life sentence. The courts severed the paternal rights for both Cinny and Wes Matthews as to their biological daughter Shayna. This was done after it was discovered that the night Sharon died, her parents left her home alone while they went out to dinner with their biological daughter. After a brief period in foster care, Shayna is now living safely with relatives. India has also suspended all adoptions through Holt International Adoption Agency due to the negligence exhibited in this case. The Child Protective Services Commissioner, Hank Williams, refused to discuss the reasons why Sharon Matthews was never removed from her home, other than to state that he was deeply disappointed and believed that underfunding and heavy caseloads lead to the type of failures that caused the lack of removal of Sharon from the Matthews care back in March of 2017. As a spider spins a delicate web, it begins to gather both strength and beauty in its simplicity and perseverance. A web begins with fragility and dependence on the tenacity and fortitude of the little spider. But with persistence, a small spider can create a very large and impactful work of art, a work of beauty, which is evident in each of its silky layers. Sharon wasn't allowed to trade in her fragility for strength. She wasn't given the time. It was stolen from her. The way a spider steals the future from the prey, it catches in its very web. Sharon's future was prematurely stolen away in the same way. But the night she died, there was a diligent little spider, bearing witness to the horrendous actions of a parent that might have otherwise went unnoticed. And Wesley Matthews inevitably found himself caught in that same web. Well, that does it for another episode of Invisible Choir. Our aim is to bring voice to the voiceless and visibility to the invisible. If you enjoyed this show, please remember to give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And check out our Patreon, where you get early full episode releases, bonus monthly episodes, and a mini episode every single Friday. The sources for this episode can be found in the show notes and at invisiblechoir.com. We rely on the hard work and journalistic integrity of many local and national news sources to produce this show. Without them, we wouldn't be able to bring these cases to a broader worldwide audience. We thank them for their work, and we thank you for listening. (laughs) 